The Federation does not get to decide if a species lives or dies. I was standing up for the Federation, for what it represents, for what it should still represent. The Vintage Picard Podcast. It's um, discussion, analysis, debate about Star Trek Picard. All right, good. It's really quite exciting, actually. Very good, fine. I'll listen. Engage. Welcome to another episode of Vintage Picard, a podcast where we talk about Star Trek Picard and Star Trek at large. Yes, we are back with you once again for episode three. We welcome you if you are new and if you're a returning listener, then of course we are happy to have you back and along for the journey. We are very excited, a lot to cover here on the podcast today. First and foremost, I should of course introduce myself since you hardly know me, even if you've listened to all three episodes, well, this would be the third episode, so you have listened to a maximum of two prior unless you've listened to later episodes and come back to this for some reason, which I'm really, I, I don't want to, uh, I'm confusing you, me, and anybody who has ever watched a Star Trek episode and said, no, don't get into the time nonsense again. I want you to stop this immediately. So... I apologize for that. I'm just going to stop rambling and jump right into who I am. I am Gary McComiskey. I am somebody uh, who is a longtime Star Trek fan, not like somebody who has super encyclopedic knowledge of the brand, but somebody who is a longtime passionate fan, especially about Star Trek The Next Generation. And of course... My co-host, along for the journey here with me. Hi, I'm James Ajazi, and yes, I am also a lifelong Star Trek fanatic, and my favorite edition of Star Trek before Picard is uh, Deep Space Nine. And again, just like Gary, uh, we don't take this too seriously, so we're not obsessive, and we don't study and memorize things. It's just more about discussion and, and the idea of what Mr. Roddenberry had and uh, our affection for it and the great acting of Sir Patrick Stewart and so on and so forth. Yeah, what I put in the podcast bio, I guess, the podcast description, is uh, we take Star Trek seriously ourselves, not so much. There you go. Well well said. So I, I hope that gives you a sense of what we're all about here. And what we are about to do is embark on uh you know a journey i keep saying journey it's like it like this podcast is going to be some life-changing event it won't hopefully it'll give you an hour or so of entertainment you know star trek related but uh anyway so what i want to start off with here james is i want to kind of revisit something here and that is the third issue of the Star Trek Picard Countdown comic book series, or miniseries, I guess it would be. And if you listen to our first episode, you heard us talk about the first and second issues of that comic, which were the lead-in to the Star Trek Picard series taking place um, a number of years prior to the series, back uh, before the Romulan supernova, back when Jean-Luc Picard was leading a rescue effort. He was captaining a ship called the Verity in uh, trying to evacuate Romulans that are at risk from the supernova. 
And if you recall, he went to this one colony and objected to the fact that they were going to just leave the natives to die and uh, then got himself captured and imprisoned. He got broken out by some rogue Tal Shiar agents. And then uh, at the same time, the governor of the Romulan colony in question weaseled her way onto the Verity and took it over via a computer hack. And that's where we pick up here. And now the conclusion. So the comic book picks up. It's Picard reminiscing about kind of uh, key influential moments, life-changing moments that he's experienced. He talks about how he's, he's been different people over the course of his life. And he, uh, there's a panel of him as Locutus of Borg. There's a panel of him playing the Resican flute from the inner light when he wound up, you know, in a simulation and lived an entire lifetime as another person. There's a panel of what I believe is supposed to be when he's being tortured by Gul Madred. Full lights. And uh, there's also a panel of him going face to face with the Borg Queen in first contact. So he talks about that. He reminisces. And then he kind of brings himself back to out of his reverie to his current challenge. Let's call it. So. We pick up the the proper story with Picard and his first officer, Raffi. Now, remember that for later. His first officer on the Verity, Raffi, who had been in prison with him, they are led into a Romulan control room, like an operations center, by Laris and Jabon, who are the two rogue Tal Shiar agents who broke him out of prison in the first place. They lead him in. And they, uh, it's, it's a classic bushwhack, James. They lead them to think that they've captured them and are returning them, but in fact, turn their disruptors on the, the guys in the operation center and eliminate them. And Picard is able to contact the Verity, which he discovers has actually been taken over by the Romulan governor which, you know, the the last, the second issue left off on this huge cliffhanger, dun-dun-dun, and it effectively comes to nothing because almost immediately the crew of the Verity are able to break through some of the lockouts and beam them into the brig. So, so that, you know, that, that really goes nowhere. And so Picard and, uh, and the rest beam back up to the Verity. And unfortunately, there is still a bit of a lockout because of, the Romulans hack so they don't have full control of the ship at this point but they are occupying the bridge and they are the people in control of the ship like basically nobody's in control of the ship at this point but Starfleet is more in control than anybody else so when Picard gets back to the ship the idiot who gave up control in the first place uh he he apologizes immediately to the admiral and says i'm so sorry i did that and picard instead of reprimanding him for allowing that to happen he actually praises what he did because he did it out of a willingness to help and he emphasizes that he was trying to help people in need he was doing the right thing and it's not his fault that the people that he was trying to help turned on him. The The sentiment is important to help. You shouldn't not help people because you're worried that it could go badly. So after that happens, a Tal Shiar ship decloaks 
and says, Ha ha! You've fallen into our trap! <laughs> we don't report to the Romulan Senate. We're all on our own, so there's no recourse for you to do anything about it, and you just have to listen to us, because we're the ones calling the shots, because it turns out that, in fact, the computer code that the governor used to take control or partial control of the Verity was supplied by the Tal Shiar, and the fact that it was only a partial takeover was their plan, because they wanted to ultimately get their agents onto the ship to ensure a full takeover by the Tal Shiar. And the agents in question are Laris and Jay Bon, their secret double agents or triple agents, yeah. I guess, at this point. Dun, dun, dun. So it seems like all is lost because even though Laris doesn't want to cooperate, Jay Bon says this was actually the plan all along. And we were really working for the Tal Shiar, and this is me going to take over your ship. And it actually, funnily enough, winds up being a fake out because he gives this grandiose speech about how actually this was the plan, and actually we have you right where we want you. And then he's like, but actually, when I saw how genuinely committed you were to saving the Romulan people, Admiral Picard, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. So, Tal Shiar, you can go shove it. <laughs> and coincidentally, at that time, two Romulan warbirds decloak. And they do work for the Senate. So they're like, actually, the Tal Shiar uh, is doing this all on their own. We don't endorse this at all. We've got your back. And so the Tal Shiar just slinks off. And really, it just kind of wraps up that, the comic that way with very little being resolved. And the final panels of the comic are Admiral Picard calling Geordi LaForge, who you may remember is in command of the Utopia Planitia shipbuilding facilities on Mars and who is in charge of building the Romulan rescue fleet there. Uh, he calls him and uh, he, he kind of wants to check in with him and it leaves on a very hopeful note. In fact, I think the last thing that Admiral Picard says in the comic is the future is bright, which I guess is a bit of, I don't know, counter foreshadowing. I, I don't know. Is that a term? But we know, of course, that shortly after this comic takes place, something terrible is going to happen. And in fact, the future is quite dim indeed. But for the time being, the comic ends on a positive note. I have to say, James, I'm a little disappointed. I don't want to I want to spend too much time on this comic. And the reason for that is I'm a little disappointed. I was hoping that it would really lead right into the series in a meaningful way. Now, it does set up a lot of the major players in the series, Laris, Shaban, and uh, Rafi, spoilers, as well as perhaps some others that we don't know about yet that are significant. But for now, it seems like those are the main players that it, it introduces. And that's good. You know, it's good information to know who they are. But in terms of a substantive plot line running through the, the main series, there really isn't much of that there. So I found that a bit disappointing and a bit anticlimactic. I don't know if that's something that they do purposely because it sounds familiar going back to the 2009 Star Trek uh, movie. 
that they did the same thing where they had a series of comic books that were going to lead into the movie so you understood about Nero and where he was coming from and what was going on with Mr. Spock or Ambassador Spock and so on and so forth. And then, yeah, it kind of ended and it could have led into the movie or it couldn't have, you know. So maybe they do that on purpose to have a little bit of an open-endedness where they're just kind of, like you said, setting up the characters and kind of the story and then all of a sudden the series starts. So just out of curiosity, was it an actual comic book or was it uh, digital? I think it is a physical comic, although I read it digitally. Gotcha. So, yeah, I, I mean... I guess my uh, recommendation to you as a listener and potential reader is if you want a fully fleshed out idea of the background of these characters, more so than we've been able to give you here, then, you know, feel free to read it. And, you know, that that's that's certainly your option and your choice. It's not a bad book or series of books, but. It's a little dull, and I'm sorry to say that, but the story itself is a little dull and a little pointless. So if you're looking for a thrill ride going into the series, maybe skip it. You know, it's, it's up to you. That just brings up a great point that you brought up was when they were supposed to release all three of the comics before the premiere of Star Trek Picard. And then you said that they decided to hold off on that. I'm curious if they did that on purpose because personally, so far, the first two episodes of Star Trek Picard are excellent, in my opinion. I'm wondering if they felt that maybe the story was a little weak for the comic and they wanted to uh, make sure that Picard premiered excitedly and, and beautifully as opposed to maybe some people getting a little bit turned off by the comic, you think? Or was it just that... It I don't know. It's possible, although it's equally possible that there was just some production delay that caused them to, you know, have to push it back. And in fact, the fact that there isn't any major revelatory spoiler in the comic kind of leads me to think that that might, in fact, be the case that, you know, they decided, you know what, it doesn't really matter if this comes out before or after the series because there's no real meat there's no real connective tissue there. So if it gets pushed a week, who cares? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I probably could have done some more research. I don't know if I would have found a definitive answer, but that's all I got, man. Well, thanks for the summary. Yeah, sure. But you know what else I've got, James, is I've got, first, I've got some business to take care of because there are a couple of things that I forgot to mention last week on the podcast. In fact, I realized after we recorded it, I went back and I recorded lines to insert into the podcast because I thought they were important enough to mention. And then I forgot to drop them into the podcast <laughs> when I was editing it. So uh, double dumb on me, I guess. But anyway, I will make up for that right now and revisit episode one of Star Trek Picard. We have to go back. So real quick, two things that I should have mentioned last week. One is that the crew of people that killed Dodge, that, that attacked Dodge and eventually wound up exploding her, at one point towards the end of the battle, the like second to last guy that she faces off with, she, in the course of the fight, she rips off his helmet and we discover that he is in fact a Romulan. Dun, dun, dun. This is my shocked voice. Hear how shocked I am. 
I am so shocked at that piece of information. How unexpected. Anyway, so that's one. And two, something that's kind of a very important plot point that I forgot to mention, Daystrom Institute. So when Picard went to meet Dr. Agnes Gerardi at the Daystrom Institute, and she tells him all about how the lab has been shut down and, and, and before and Bruce Maddox and all that, one key piece of information that she drops that I neglected to mention is that the Daystrom Institute Robotics Lab, where they were doing all that research, is the lab that actually produced the synths that wound up going rogue and taking down the defense grid on Mars and, and leading to the attack. So that is, uh, you know, potentially a very key plot point and helps to color why the Federation became so very anti-synth in the wake of that attack because their own creations effectively had turned on them. So those are the, the bits of information from last week that I felt you needed to know. And I apologize again for missing out on that. But uh, James, if you are amenable, I think with all that business taken care of, we should jump right into the main event and get to season one, episode two of Star Trek Picard maps and legends. So the episode opens, picture, if you will. The episode opens on Mars and at Utopia Planitia Shipyards. It is first contact day and we find out it is 14 years ago. This is the day that it all went down. The day that everything went horribly, horribly wrong. So we open on a shot of the rescue fleet that's already been built and in the process of being built, hanging in space, waiting to deploy. Then we go into the facility itself, or one of the facilities, and we see a group of synths. And we know they're synths because they all have a very uh, kind of artificial-looking pallor. They have identical orange jumpsuits and yellow eyes, and they have numbers and letters stamped on their foreheads. And the uh, human-looking guy who comes and kind of uh, awakens them from, from the room where they're lying dormant greets them with good morning plastic people <laughs> so you know the, and they they greet him in kind in unison so we discover that since it is first contact day the utopia planitia facility is crewed with a skeleton crew most of the people who work there have seemingly left they they have the day off in fact we see shuttles leaving the planet left and right and uh, it seems like while there are still people there, there aren't that many people working there. It's mostly the synths and a handful of people who are left behind. So that, I think, that's our out for something that we will learn later. But uh, we'll talk about that when we get to it. And so one of the synths, we, we go to a specific crew that's working. One of the synths, F8, is kind of being teased by the crew. And, you know, he, you can see that he's... He's accepted as a member of the crew, of the work crew, but he's not treated as an equal. And in fact, the way he acts, he does seem very primitive. Like, you can see the connective tissue to Data, since the Daystrom Institute did produce these things, one assumes, based on B4. And as we remember, B4 is an early version of the positronic androids like Data and Lore 
that Dr. Noonie and Soong eventually perfected. But for now, they're, they're working off of the, the very early primitive kind of beta model of that, which is, you know, before. And you can tell they're not like these synths. They're very artificial. I mean, they're artificial life regardless, but I would say they probably don't rise to the level of sentience. I mean, I don't know what your, your floor for that is, but I don't think they meet it. Like if measure of a man, the episode where Bruce Maddox was uh, putting data on trial, if that was about one of these guys, like they would have been in a box to Federation uh, headquarters, you know, before the end of the first act. There, there's really not much there. They're competent automatons, but really not very much else. So during lunch, during their lunch break, the crew, the human, uh, well, I shouldn't say human. That's that's racist, dude. That's specious, human. Oh, the biological crew is eating lunch and F8 is just kind of hanging out because, you know, they're on a lunch break and he doesn't need to eat. And then it zooms in on his eyes and you can tell he's kind of being reprogrammed because they flash and kind of zoom and, and change color a little bit. And his, his whole demeanor subtly changes. And he immediately turns, walks over to a panel and starts doing that super speed thing that androids do and he winds up, uh, basically, it looks like he's turning the planetary defense grid on the planet. And then we hear a, uh, like, it, it sounds like he's not the only one because we hear a, a warning over the loudspeaker. There's a security alert that the synths have been compromised. And so very quickly, in, in very quick fashion, he, he completes his job with the computer, uh, with the defense grid. He kills all of the crew members in the room and then he shoots himself in the head just as the facility explodes and explosion into theme. So that, um, that that's, I mean, that's our action packed teaser there at the beginning of the episode. So coming out of the theme, we cut to the vineyard. We cut back to Chateau Picard and specifically Jean-Luc Picard Former Admiral Jean-Luc Picard is in his study and he is reviewing the security footage of the incident where Dodge got killed uh, when, when they were attacked on the roof by the Romulan death squad. And they, you know, Dodge met her end. And in fact, he is sitting there with Laris and Jabon and they all come to the conclusion that according to the footage, the only one on that roof was Picard. And there's really no origination point for that explosion. It's been completely scrubbed. They've done like forensic analysis on the video and there's no trace of Dodge or the people that attacked them. So, you know, somebody's gotten into the, uh, the, the, the works as it were, somebody knows what they're doing, has high level access and can, you know, do that kind of crazy tech manipulation that they seem to be able to do so effortlessly in, in Star Trek. And uh, so Laris and Jabon, uh, over the course of this conversation, they come to the conclusion, oh, this has to be the Tal Shiar. Well, I don't think the Tal Shiar can do this. You know who it actually is. No, that's not a real thing. In fact, Picard's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they, in fact, divulge the fact that they are talking about the Jatvash, which is the, like, 
super duper secret Romulan police. <laughs> They're like uh, an ancient cult, basically. And uh, Jat Vash apparently is a reference in Romulan to the dead, because the idea is that only the dead can be reliable keepers of secrets. So, uh, yeah, th- this th- what they postulate is that the the Tal Shiar evolved out of the Jat Vash. And so they've been operating in the shadows for thousands of years and th- they they have agents everywhere, James, everywhere. So. This next bit is actually intercut with a different scene of them investigating Dodge's apartment. But for the sake of clarity and a lack of confusion, a hopeful lack of confusion, I'm going to lay it out kind of one and then the other. So basically what Laris explains is that for thousands of years, the Jatvash have tried to infiltrate all these different societies and they have had the goal, the express goal of eliminating artificial life. They, for some reason that is unknown and unexplained, they hate artificial life of any kind and want to wipe it out. So as far as the apartment goes, Jean-Luc Picard and Laris show up at Dodge's apartment and they want to investigate what Dodge said happened, namely the killing of her boyfriend and how she, like, annihilated the three dudes that showed up at her, her place. So as a former Tal Shiar agent, Laris has access to some rather remarkable heretofore unknown technology. She produces a Romulan scanner that is capable of forensic molecular reconstruction, which is illegal in the Federation and highly unreliable, which is what they wanted you to think. But uh, so sh- she does... She does a little thing, scans the room with her little doohickey, and uh, they see the beginnings of the conversation, their last conversation together, and it cuts off right before the, the, the crew of goons attacks. So, you know, they determine that all traces there have been scrubbed out. This is uh, just like the security footage. This is a team of professionals who know what they're doing and did so at great personal peril because of the technologies involved, and uh, they're unlikely to find anything that way. However, what they do decide to do is check her phone records. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, it's a Star trek up, like, fancy computer personal assistant thing. You know, it's basically their, I guess, the next generation of PAD, which is uh, just kind of like a metal bar that has a holographic screen pop up that they can manipulate. But it's basically they're just checking her phone records and they discover that they've been more or less scrambled, but that the information is still there and they just have to find a hook into finding out which bit of information is the one that they need to find where the sister Soji is. And they happen upon the thought that, oh, well, They look identical, so the computer might have mistaken the other one for Dodge. So if we can find those error messages, then we can find those calls. And in fact, you know, Techno Babble Ahoy, they managed to do it, and they discover that Soji is in fact living off-world. They don't know where she is, but she ain't on Earth. And James... Before we move on, I just want to say this. Hold. I feel like a little bit of a ghoul saying this because none of these people are real. This is a fictional story. But 
I kind of wish that Soji had died and Dodge had lived because I find the name Dodge easier to say and easier to remember. I, I just, I wish they had made that the one that we're going to be talking about for the next eight episodes <laughs> instead of uh, Soji Asher or Asha, Asha. Yeah, I think I, I think I, I made a mistake. It's not Asher, it's Asha. Uh, I agree with you on different reasons, as a matter of fact. Okay, carry on. I, I agree. I, I think Dodge is a much uh, easier name to pronounce and remember. And I also like that character a lot better. I thought she was really cool. I like that Matrix effect with her fighting skills and so fascinating. So I agree with you on that aspect. But here we go. We'll see what Soji is all about. Well, as far as we know, Soji isn't woken up yet. So once she does, you know, if they are basically identical twins, maybe she'll become the same person effectively. But who knows? Who knows? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Resume. One thing we do see pretty quickly is uh, Soji, in fact, on the Borg Cube, which is the Romulan Reclamation Facility, is how it's uh, kind of referred to. And she is not alone. In fact, she very much has company because we discover her in bed with the Romulan Narek, who is, you know, he's, he's the mysterious new boy, the bad boy, the mysterious bad boy who's broken and she needs to fix him. He's, he's, he's sexy, but vulnerable. And she has a thing for that type of person, apparently, because obviously they met and immediately went for a tumble, but you know, who am I to judge? It's the, it's the 24th century, James, or no, the 20, 25th century. I think it's no, the 24th. It's cause it's 23, something or other. 24. No, I think I think at this time it's just into 20 it's like 2402 or something. So, I think that's the year where this picks up. Wait, it's so, it's st- so it's still 14 years ago? Oh boy. It was 14 years from when Mars was attacked. Right. So it wasn't 23 and change the year? I think the Romulan supernova occurred in 2389. I would have to refer back to my notes from a few weeks ago which I don't have right here at hand. But so I think the math works out that it's like 2402 or 2403 or something like that. Oh, okay. I thought it was the 24th. So, okay. So if it is the 25th century, none of this matters until it does. But for the moment, none of this matters. We're just arguing over useless minutia. I apologize. But anyway, it's the 25th century, James. Come on. Let's get with the times here. So. And just by the way, last week I said that Dodge gave me Winnie Cooper vibes. I have to say, I think Soji actually gives me Veronica from the show Riverdale vibes, (laughs) which uh, I watched that show for two seasons, not because it was good television, but just because I grew up much as I grew up watching Star Trek. I also grew up reading the Archie comics and I just felt a connection to those characters, even though it was an awful show eventually i had just had to cut the cord that's neither here nor there but i think seeing soji in her underwear actually is what helped me make the the connection to uh to veronica from riverdale because both of them so far i i don't have i have limited experience with soji admittedly but both of them seem to spend a non-trivial amount of time in their underwear on screen so um that's neither here nor there narek i have to say gives me vibes of that sadist from game of thrones I don't remember his name. He's the guy that tortured Theon Greyjoy. And uh, if you've seen the show, you know who I'm talking about. He gives me him vibes. So I don't know. 
I guess maybe I should just stop comparing people to other people and take them as they are, but some things I just can't help. I'm sorry. Anyway, sidebar over. So uh, they're in bed together and uh, they're flirting while at the same time Soji is waxing poetic about the artifact. The artifact, which is what they call the Borg Cube because you can't call it a Borg Cube because it's not a Borg Cube anymore because it's dormant. And we discover that the Romulans are actually selling the Borg tech that they are able to salvage from the cube. And I guess that's how they are staying sufficient as a society, given the absence of Romulus uh, and, and, you know, an empire to speak of. So uh, they they finish the scene by flirting back and forth. Very cute while discussing secrecy and secrets and things that, you know, Romulans or Narek can't tell her and yada, yada, yada. So thankfully that scene is over. We then transition back to Chateau Picard where Jean-Luc, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it again. I'm being informal where the Admiral receives a house call from Dr. Moritz Benayoun. And we come to discover that this is an old crewmate of his from the Stargazer. I'm guessing the ship's medical officer, but eh, who knows? We don't get a lot of background there. Unfortunately, I'd like to get some more and maybe we will down the road or maybe we won't. But for now, crewmates from the Stargazer and Jean-Luc Picard is trying to get cleared. He's trying to get certified for service in interstellar space. But we find out that the house call is to deliver some bad news, unfortunately. And that bad news is uh, something, it's a bit of a throwback, as it were. It's, it's kind of a, well, not a throwback per se, but it's, it's picking up a thread from All Good Things, which you may recall is the final episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And in that, in the possible future that Q shows him, Picard is found to have Eremotic Syndrome which is a defect in his parietal lobe, which leads to uh, all kinds of like hallucinations and, and kind of uh, dementia sort of symptoms. And, or at least that's the, the implication of the effects of the disease and all kinds of nasty stuff. So in fact, fast forward to the actual future of Star Trek Picard and Dr. Moritz has found a, abnormality in the admiral's parietal lobe and even though it is not named as eremotic syndrome it's not diagnosed as that he says in fact there's a few things it could be i think that's kind of the implication of what it's going to wind up as and we find out that essentially picard is on a ticking clock you know this thing is going to get worse they don't know exactly what it is at this point but whatever it is it's going to get worse and it's going to get bad. So if he wants to act, he has to act basically now before, you know, he can't act anymore. And he needs that certification to get back out in space. He, he needs to be able to show Starfleet that he can still get back out there. And in fact, uh, one assumes that he was able to weasel that certification out of Dr. Benayoun because the next thing we see is... Admiral Picard beaming to San Francisco, where, uh, of course, the location of Starfleet headquarters is. Now, one thing, James, one thing that I noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, but in this future, this 25th, let's say, century future of San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge is still there, except 
the roadway is covered with solar panels or what appear to be solar panels. Now, far be it from me to question the logic of Star Trek. I get that in the future, I'm sure the, the efficiency of solar panels has much improved from what it is now and they want to be green. They've long since abandoned fossil fuels and all that. But if you have like dilithium reactors and working fusion reactors, why are you messing around with solar panels? <laughs> like, what's even the point? I know I realize that I'm looking at this from a 21st century standpoint, but it just seems like, you know, that that's that just seems like, oh, we want to we want to show how great we are without actually thinking about the logic in that. I don't know. Maybe it's just me being a nitpicky curmudgeon for the sake of doing so. One oh, just one one other thing quickly, James. When I was jotting down my notes, I realized something, and I wonder if this is why they put it there. It's silly, but there's a non-zero possibility. I noticed that San Francisco and Starfleet are both abbreviated with SF. So, <laughs> I, like, it's a silly thing, but I was like, oh, SF and SF, ha ha ha. So maybe, uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. When was the first time they were revealed to be in San Francisco? Was that Star Trek Four? What was the first appearance of San Francisco as Starfleet headquarters in the Star Trek canon? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't recall in Next Generation. Uh, obviously, Deep Space, it was all over the place in San Francisco. That, that would be my guess. It would be Star Trek IV, the uh, Voyage Home. I mean, I think Starfleet Academy is in San Francisco. So yeah. in Next Generation, it would have been no later than the first duty, which is, I believe, the episode where Wesley Crusher right. uh, was involved in the scandal when one of his fellow pilots got killed. Although it may have made an appearance earlier than that. I don't remember. And we're getting bogged down in something that doesn't matter. Well, once again, if uh, yeah, dear listener, if you know, let us know. Yeah, please email us at Vintage Picard. Email us, tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us. We're Vintage Picard just about everywhere. So if you if you have an answer, let us know. We are just the kind of pedants that want to know the answer to that question, but are too lazy to look it up ourselves. So uh, please do our job for us. We beg of you. Anyway, so all that to say, uh, Admiral Picard goes to San Francisco. He beams there in order to visit Starfleet headquarters. And as he walks in the door, coincidentally, he looks up and he sees a hologram of what looks like the original Enterprise changing to a hologram of the Enterprise D. I'm going to assume that it's like a slideshow of flagships, Federation flagships, although it would have to be a shuffled slideshow since I'm sure there were flagships between the original Enterprise and the D, you know, and, and not necessarily all the other Enterprises either. I mean, right. what uh, Excelsior was a big deal. I don't know if that was the flagship, but Excelsior was a big deal for a while. And in fact, the Enterprise B was an Excelsior class. Uh, Enterprise C was an ambassador class. Again, I don't know if it was the flagship, but it could have been. They seem to like making the Enterprise the flagship of the fleet. And why not? Why not? But uh, I guess my point is that there is missing continuity between those two ships that we didn't see. And I know why we didn't see it, but I think you know what I'm saying. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, as, as they just skipped from the Enterprise all the way through the D. But I had a problem with the graphic 
for the enterprise. And to quote the great Mr. Scott, no bloody A, B, C, or D. The original enterprise that they showed was not the original enterprise that I know and love and the original series enterprise. It was similar, but it wasn't the exact duplicate of what I know as the 1966 series enterprise. Well, James, I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. I mean, we don't know for sure that that was supposed to be the enterprise. I'm sure it was, but it wasn't labeled as such. So we can't say definitively that that was supposed to be the 1701. However, what I would suspect is the case is, and this is spoilers for anybody who is intending to watch Discovery and hasn't gotten all the way through it yet. In Star Trek Discovery, the second season, the original Enterprise pre-Kirk plays a significant role in that series. So what I would say is what they probably did is they took the updated CGI model from that series and plugged it in as the hologram for this scene. Now, I can't swear that that's what they did. I haven't done a side-by-side comparison, but my guess, especially given Star Trek's penchant or penchant, if you're fancy, for reusing visual assets. I mean, how many times have we seen the uh, Klingon bird of prey from Star Trek three exploding? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But uh, I would I would surmise that that's what they did. All right. But uh, <laughs> back to our regularly scheduled program. So he he goes to Starfleet headquarters. He heads up to the front desk. The receptionist. He doesn't know who he is. Like he he, he has no idea who who Captain Picard is or Admiral. Excuse me, Admiral. Who Admiral Picard is? So he gives his name and oh, of course, Admiral. Sidebar. All of the Starfleet personnel walking around Starfleet headquarters were all wearing the early DS9 slash TNG movie era uniforms, like the ones that they were transitioning into during Generations, and they were gone by first contact, right? By first contact, they had the gray uniforms, the, the gray top uniforms. Am I, am I wrong in that? Well, because, yeah, here's, here's where the, the real confusion comes in. I don't want to delay this podcast even longer. But with the end of uh, Deep Space Nine, I think that's the uniform that influenced the movies. I do think, because Deep Space Nine went till real year, what, 99, 2000, maybe? Or definitely 1999? Right, but, but in the early seasons of DS9, yes. they had the black, mostly black uniforms with the discipline yes. color on top yes and those were the uniforms that people were walking around in at starfleet command it, oh, gotcha. it was strange to see given how much time had pa- i mean maybe like you know maybe starfleet goes with uh, retro fashions you know <laughs> everything old is new again although when we fast forward and meet the admiral that admiral picard is there to see who, in fact, he is there to ask to be reinstated into Starfleet for just one mission. She is wearing the quote-unquote modern uniform, which is a little different. It's similar, but it is a little different. And so the fact that she's wearing that and everybody else at Starfleet Command is wearing a different uniform is just odd to me. It's just strange. Was it like we can't afford to make too many of these, so let's just dig around in our closets? I mean, yes, again, that's something that Star Trek would do because they can be very cheap sometimes. 
but like i it just it just seemed weird to me it was just weird yeah first of all i apologize for misunderstanding the uniform because i was thinking of the like season six and seven of deep space no, nine man, with, with the movies i don't know if if we're thinking a little bit too much into this too but in next generation oh, there was... we're we're definitely okay. thinking a little too much into this make no mistake about that well yeah well, well in, in all honesty first of all with the special effects look terrific on, on Star Trek Picard, so they easily could have just CGI'd all that stuff. But another thing, too, is I remember from Next Generation was a lot of times in later seasons that they recycled the old original uh, jumpsuit uniforms on um, underlings, if you will, or, uh, you know, background actors and stuff like that. So I don't know yeah, if yeah, they're yeah. trying to do the same thing with Picard. I mean, as long as we don't see dudes walking around in skirts... You know, as long as they don't go that far back, I mean, just a personal choice. Aesthetically, I don't find that appealing. But, you know, personal aesthetics aside, those uniforms just didn't look good. They, you know, they were, the, the, they had the zippers and the material mm. was very, I don't, yeah, no, don't go that far back. If if you have to, fine, reach into the closet, but, but leave season one out of this, please. <laughs> But I digress. So he meets with the Admiral. He says, Admiral, you have to reinstate me for just this one mission. And she says, no, the line must be drawn here. This far, no father. She doesn't actually say that, but she does tell him. She, she tells him in no uncertain terms that that is not going to happen. She saw the interview. Everybody saw the interview where he lost his cool. And he basically insulted Starfleet and she says, essentially, I'm not going to send people out under your command after you just, you know, belittled all of Starfleet like this. I, who do you think you are? This is not going to happen. And uh, fun sidebar here. If you haven't watched Discovery and you, you don't know the tone now, Star Trek curses. Yeah, I'm not. There's curses in Star Trek now. I'm not digging that at all. They um, have a potty mouth. They do. And, and, and she drops an F-bomb. And uh, just in all honesty, it's completely unprofessional and, and silly in real life. And I didn't like that at all, hearing that. And uh, I'm sure Mr. Roddenberry is, uh, is spinning. <laughs> I don't think he appreciates that either. But anyway, you're right. Whatever, that seems to be their little tone, which I disagree with. But, you know. I mean, if Discovery is any indication and the first, you know the early episodes of Star Trek Picard, it's not something they do like all the time. Like it's, you know, it's not Dennis Leary mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, on, talking on, on, on these shows, you know, you're not, or uh, George Carlin, you're not going to get that. They, they tend to drop one or two colorful words, you know, per episode or every couple of episodes, just, I guess, to remind you we're not on network television you know, and, 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 and this is edgy. This is the edgy new Star Trek. And I kind of agree with you. I think it's silly. I think when you've grown up being used to a certain style of, uh, you know, entertainment, something like that can be very jarring. I mean, when Data cursed in Generations, it was a huge thing because nobody was expecting it. And that was like the one thing in the entire movie. And it was a movie. It wasn't a show, obviously. So it got your attention. But when they do it, you know, not all the time, but often enough that it becomes commonplace, it's not 
edgy and it's not shocking. It's just kind of silly. But, you know, that's where we are now as a franchise. So thanks to this podcast, be careful if you're going to watch with your young ones because that's another thing too. One of the benefits of the old Star Trek series was you the whole family could sit down and watch and enjoy. Not so much anymore. Yeah, actually, I I encountered that very exact situation tonight. I was reviewing the episode one last time before we started recording the podcast. And uh, with like six minutes and change left, my wife and daughter got home. They were out. And I, I said, I, I'm just going to finish this out. I mean, the F-bomb had already been dropped, so I knew we were safe there. And so I turned it on. My daughter was sitting there reading a magazine and something else was said that wasn't quite as jarring, but was still, you know, a pretty definitive swear that I'm not going to repeat. But but uh, a character right at the end of the episode dropped something. And my daughter looked up and she said, did she just say I said, I'm sorry, I forgot about that. Ignore it. It's a bad word. Don't think about it. Don't repeat it. I, I apologize. But I, I sh- it's Star Trek. I shouldn't have to apologize to my daughter for language when I'm watching Star Trek. Dang it, get off my lawn. No, really, we're not being old curmudgeons. That's that's true. And just real quick, I'm sorry to, to delay things a little bit more, but with Deep Space Nine, Gene Roddenberry, his original uh, idea and plan was he didn't want to deal with war and, and confrontation and things like that. And Deep Space Nine took it a step farther and did. Obviously, it was after he passed away. But I do think that it kept the Star Trek theme, and it was very interesting, too. But for this, you're really messing with the formula. And, and that's one of the benefits of Star Trek is that it's inclusive and everybody can watch and especially a family. And you could talk about the next generation. You go from generation to generation. So, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of forced things or just trying to be edgy. But in this day and age with YouTube and social media, you know, but um, but the, yeah, the, the, the curse at the end of the episode is. I have a really bad potty mouth off air, but that's even something I don't say just being a Catholic. But anyway, continue, sir. Thank you. Sorry. Listener, if you disagree with our take on this, if you think that it's fine and it adds color and, you know, it's that's how people talk. So it's fine. No, that sounds mocking and patronizing. I'm sorry. If you think that it's okay and you, you know, want to take us up on this want to, and you would like to engage us on this topic. Feel free to contact us. Like I said before, Vintage Picard on just about anything. And, uh, you know, well, not like in the phone book or anything like that. I shouldn't say just about anything, but your social media, your email, etc. Reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your perspective. We want to take up with you. So please, uh, we want to throw down. We don't want to throw down. We really don't. (laughs) We genuinely want to hear your opinion. So let us know. Let us know what you think. Finishing this scene, which we've gone on six different tangents on. Over the course of it, and I apologize, but just finishing out this scene, we learn that the decision to abandon the Romulans in their time of need after the attack was not entirely born out of cowardice. It was a practical matter because 14 worlds had threatened to pull out of the Federation even before the attack because they didn't want the Romulans to be helped by the Federation because I guess they were afraid of them. So... It was, as much as anything else, an attempt to avoid a basically a civil war within the Federation. So it was a practical consideration as much as anything else. And one more tangent, one more real quick tangent, James. One thing I found interesting about this whole thing 
Picard blames Starfleet for abandoning the Romulans and Starfleet for abandoning its principles and ideals and Starfleet for, for, you know, not being Starfleet anymore. However, Starfleet is like basically the military and exploration branch of the Federation. They're not an autonomous body. They are, you know, essentially deployed on behalf of the Federation, the United Federation of Planets. So shouldn't his, I mean, it's a technical thing, but shouldn't his beef be with the Federation? Wouldn't like the Federation president have made that decision or Federation Congress or whatever? Uh, council, I guess the Federation Council would be the the analog. But wouldn't somebody who's not like an admiral at Starfleet have made that decision before anyone else? I don't know. It's food for thought. No, that's, you're. That's right. just that's what I was thinking. You're right. And again, referencing Deep Space Nine, they brought that up as well. Yeah. No, they did. Uh, and and that's that's partly what made me think of it. But it, it's yeah. You know, it's, again, just just something to think about. So. We return now. We return you now to your regularly scheduled Borg Cube, wherein Soji has actually put some pants on and gone to work. And she <laughs> is like in a locker room, essentially suiting up for her shift at work. And uh, she's talking to a newbie who is a trill. And she's she's new there. She's just been accepted into the, the program or whatever. And uh, she is going to be our designated cabbage head for the episode. What did you just say? What's a cabbage head? Well, I will tell you, a cabbage head is a term that has been used, particularly in Star Trek terms, to describe a character who is designated as the dumb one who doesn't know anything so that they can be explained to. Like, basically, your cabbage head is the audience analog that that doesn't understand what's going on, so one of the characters has to throw a lot of exposition at them to bring them up to speed. So, uh, I don't know. Dr. Cabbage head here is, um, she's, she, she doesn't know anything about how the Borg cube works. And so Soji is explaining to her that this particular cube has been severed from the collective and, uh, is, is not no longer an active part of the Borg collective. And in fact, they don't call them Borg anymore. They call them ex Borg. Because, well, they've been severed from the collective. And in fact, it is a facility that has been taken over by the Romulan Free State, which I guess is what they're calling the remaining Romulans. And they are reclaiming the Borg Cube, which is still potentially dangerous, we find. They wear special badges. It's not expressed exactly what they're for, but the implication is that if, like, Borg wake up and start trying to assimilate people, the badges will flash and they should, you know, get the Frank out of Dodge uh, <laughs> ASAP. And, uh, you know, but but really, it's probably fine. And the work crews that do this work on behalf of the Romulan Free State are not like they're not all Romulans or or all conscripted whatever they're people I guess you know I was gonna say mercenaries but I guess free agents could also be a description there they're they're just people from lots of different races who come and I guess want work you know as 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 many of this type of situation in the real world in in our current actual world manifests they're just people who who are looking for work and and come and uh, and you know try to make their fortune there. And we also discover 
over the course of this that Narek is actually really important somehow. We don't know how. We don't know what his deal is yet, but he's secretly really important. Mystery, mystery, mystery. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) But not before we transition back to Chateau Picard, where... Like, it seems like just anybody can come by for a, for a chat. There's no security in... The bar, France. But, um... So, Dr. Agnes Girati, she drops by the vineyard. I assume at Picard's request, but I don't know. So, she comes by, and in a cute moment, when Picard walks in, she's looking at a vintage book, a vintage hard copy, hardcover book, copy of an Isaac Asimov book, The Complete Robot. And um, Picard opines that it is, in fact, one of the classics. But he also mentions that he never could get into sci-fi. I guess I just don't understand it, is what he says. (laughs) I never got it. Which, I mean, you know, it's cute. It's, uh, It's a little obvious, but it's cute. Although that does kind of beg the question... If he was never into sci-fi, why does he own that book? (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, I know that Jean-Luc Picard is an old-fashioned guy, and he owns a lot more ancient, you know, slash old-fashioned things than your typical 25th century resident might. But, you know, if you're not a fan of the genre, why is that book just out conspicuously where some visitor can pick it up and thumb through it. Maybe in uh, Admiral Picard's defense that he actually gave it a shot and tried to get into it or, you know, didn't just form an opinion. (laughs) Or maybe it's some kind of subconscious nod to data. Yeah, maybe. But in all actual, in reality, um, I believe Asimov was good friends with Gene Roddenberry in real life. And yes, uh, his books and stories, I believe he even coined the phrase robot or something like that too. So very important in the science fiction genre. So that's, uh, I think, no, I think wrote, this is going down another rabbit hole. Now nah, just scratch I think that. Yeah, the could... term. No, no, real quick. I think the term robot was coined in a play that was like in the twenties about that kind of, you know, machine man kind of, creature however i believe that asimov popularized the concept of robots but that's neither here nor there what is both here and there is uh the conversation that they wind up having and that is they come to find out well dr gerardi knew she's 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 doing the telling here in this case but we come to learn that dodge see see how much easier it is to say dodge it's one syllable it rolls off the tongue dodge 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 See, it's just, it's just easy. Why do you do this to me, Star Trek? Why, why, you're, why are you taking this out on me? Uh, anyway, so Dodge uh, was actually, basically her identity was created out of whole cloth three years prior. So um, she, she's got a record of attending universities and being a great student. And she, you know, her, her school records are on file with the university and no one there has ever seen or heard from her. Like, it didn't happen. It was created in a masterful creation of her identity, and none of it is real. And so what they come to, the conclusion that they come to after discovering that, you know, Dodge was basically a plant of some sort from someone, they want to know 
since Soji still exists, they want to know what she's after and what her purpose is. Because I guess since Dodge is gone, that ship has sailed or flown, warped away. Uh, what I don't know what the future day analog. Anyway, so they want to know what her deal is. And, uh, you know, I will I will say one thing for the uh, the Star Trek Picard editors. They don't mess around. They go for the very obvious transitions because we go once again, we go from talking about Soji to seeing Soji at work on the Borg cube. She is part of the team that is surgically harvesting implants from Borg drones that are in a state of what they call regenestasis. I assume that just means that they've been regenerating in their alcoves for 14 years. And in fact, it was 14 years. That is the number that they give. So somehow or other, I think we're going to find that whatever befell this Borg cube, it is related in some way to the rogue synth attack on Mars. I don't know how yet, but you know, to conspicuously drop that 14 year number in a couple of different places in the same episode, that means something especially when you're talking about two different forms of artificial life. So, uh, yeah, basically what this means is that they have a Borg drone on a slab or not Borg, ex-Borg, ex-Bs is what they refer to them as, because for some reason saying Borg is verboten on this facility. Blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> anyway, so they, they have these Borg on a slab. They literally rip their arms off. They they drill out their eye implants. It's really quite yucky. And then they tag them for disposal, which one assumes means they're going to be vaporized or beamed into space or something. So, uh, you know, that's charming. But what do you expect from Romulans? They're ruthlessly efficient. And uh, the, the one thing we do kind of get an impression of is that Soji feels some kind of sympathetic connection with the Borg drones that's not explained. It's just kind of a feeling that we see her getting. Obviously, we know why that is, because she is artificial life herself, but she has no idea that that's the case as far as we can tell. And to add to your um, great deduction, there was a sign when, when they were telling everybody what to do and, and how to prepare for the day's work on the cube that uh, there was over 5,000 days without an incident or whatever the case was. So that actually... Without an assimilation, James. Thank you. That actually comes out to roughly 14 years, that many You did days. the math on that. Good, yeah. Good, thank you. Good on you, man. <laughs> I had to redeem myself somehow. Good job. I was too lazy to do it. I knew not, it didn't even occur to me. So thank you for that, James. <laughs> right, even a, a broken clock is right uh, twice during the day. Yeah, well, maybe... <laughs> and uh, speaking of clocks, we then jump back to Chateau Picard, where we see a reflection of a very pensive Admiral Picard uh, reflected in a clock in his study. And he he resolves himself to a conclusion, and that is to go over to his desk and take out some kind of case that has a Starfleet logo on it. And we come to understand that that is the case where he keeps his old Starfleet communicator. That is the Voyager slash movie era communicator. The one with the kind of trapezoidal thing at the bottom behind the Starfleet logo. I was always partial to the oval uh, thingummy. 
that was in the next generation era, but you know, that's time marches on. And, and at this point in Star Trek history, it is a completely different looking logo. So that, that's the one thing they always do that they just cannot be content to keep a logo for more than a decade. I don't know why they're very impulsive in the future, but, um, that's neither here nor there. So one thing I will say, and uh, the, the communicator still works after all this time. It must have a pretty good battery to be in a box for 14 years <laughs> and uh, still work. Although, given how many times in Star Trek we have seen people uh, happen upon technology that is hundreds, if not thousands of years old, that still works when they press a couple of buttons, maybe 14 years isn't all that impressive after all. Yeah, and frequencies seem to be uh, pretty good in the future, too. Like, there's no AM or FM or something like that to worry about. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, he puts on the communicator, and he taps it in the classic fashion, and he says, Rafi, don't hang up. Now, for whatever computer he's connected to, maybe she's, like, in his favorites folder or whatever, <laughs> but... You know, for for the computer to immediately know who he's talking about and route the call without any kind of context, I think that's one of those magical Star Trek things. But in reality, he would probably have to specify a little more than that. But anyway, Rafi don't hang up. He asks for help and for a ship. And who is Rafi? Well, you may think that it's a uh, a children's musician, and you're not wrong, but that's not the Rafi that we're talking about. If you think all the way back to the beginning of this podcast, and in fact, back to episode one, if you go back that far of this podcast, then you will recall that Rafi was Picard's first officer on the Verity during the Romulan evacuation. And in fact, she was billed in the comic as being Starfleet's foremost Romulan expert. So, you know, she, uh, she, she's somebody that comes with some credentials in this kind of situation, and you can see why he would turn to her for help. And so um, then we head back to Starfleet headquarters where the admiral that Picard had his confrontation with is informing a Vulcan Commodore, and we know that she is Vulcan, or we are led to believe that she is Vulcan, among other things, because she has an IDIC, an IDIC symbol on a box on her desk, uh, infinite diversity in infinite combinations. You know, that's a big Vulcan thing. Uh, that's that's the, the, the closest thing the Vulcans have to a religion, I would say, is the, the idea of the IDIC. And so she calls her up and she lets her know about the encounter with Picard and asks if she's heard anything about Romulans operating on Earth, which she categorically denies. So back to Jean-Luc Picard, and he is arguing with Laris and Jeban about going on some dang fool mission to uh, find Bruce Maddox. And uh, they they are against the idea, Laris more so than Jeban, and he is adamant and Laris storms off in a huff. And I have to say, James, this has nothing to do with the actual story of the show, but Laris is very Irish, and I love it. <laughs> the actress who plays her, it like when she gets really animated, her Irish accent, her brogue, really comes out, and it's fantastic. Agreed. But so, Jebon suggests that Picard seek out some of his old crewmates to help him from the Enterprise. And uh, Worf, he drops, and Riker, and James, 
You know who else he suggests? Yay! Jordy LaForge. Thank you. He's not dead. Thank you. Thank He's you. He's not dead. Yay! I'm not dead. <laughs> um. Yes. So we can all rejoice. Jordy is alive and kicking at this time. He was not killed in the Mars attack 14 years ago. I guess being the head of the facility, he was able to get off for first contact day. So uh, that yeah. that explains why he wasn't there. And uh, so he is he is still alive and well. And we can all. Oh, I'm actually. Wow, that's weird. I'm all I'm actually getting a tiny bit choked up thinking about that. We dodged a bullet there. Oh, not well, really? No, I, I'm, I'm having trouble talking. That's I'm, I'm getting a little more emotional than I expected about this whole thing. Oh, excuse me. I need a minute. Mm. You talk, James. I need a second. Well, I need a second, too. <laughs> we love Jordy LaForge and obviously the actor who portrays the great character, LeVar Burton. So we were very concerned about that and uh, it was something that we were hoping that they weren't going to rip our hearts out and relieved that they didn't. So it was great to see Jordy, as you said, is still alive and kicking and doing well. That makes sense. I didn't even make that connection that um, they did reference that there was a skeleton crew on Mars there. And that would make sense that the higher ups would have the day off for first contact day. Okay. I'm better now. Thank you. Thank you for that. I needed that minute. So we're in the home stretch here. Let's just push forward and finish this thing. So we go back to the Commodore's office and she, uh, she has summoned a, a human looking Lieutenant, Lieutenant Rizzo. And they, they have a very kind of cryptic and, ominous back and forth but the short version is they're both in on the whole scheme rizzo was in charge of the death squad that killed dodge and uh, in fact that was not the plan they were supposed to capture and interrogate her somebody screwed up and um so the commodore basically threatens rizzo that if they screw up again with soji it's her head and uh so rizzo informs her that she has put her best man on this project of getting the dirt on Soji. So it, it is implied that there are wheels turning on this thing. We then cut to Jean-Luc Picard, who has departed a taxi shuttle, and uh, he, he has taken it to a remote homestead, way, way out in the middle of nowhere. That is very near and dear to all our Star Trek fans' hearts, as uh, they very well directed the rock where uh, Rafi is living, and that's where they filmed Arena, where uh, Captain Kirk fought the Gorn. So, and and also too in uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, they referenced they they shot similar scenes right there too. So that was very nicely done and much appreciated. Excellent. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I um, you sunk my battleship. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great movie. I mean. Not as good as the original, but I really, I really did enjoy that movie. Well, they're working on three. I'm very happy to report. I know. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. <laughs> I, I am. Oh, too m no, we can't. I'm sad that George Carlin is no longer around. Yeah. There will be no Rufus, but I am looking forward to that third installment of the series. But, but that's not the series that we're supposed to be talking about. We're Sorry. supposed to be talking about Star Trek Picard, wherein Jean-Luc Picard approaches Rafi's house she threatens him with a phaser rifle and tells him to leave immediately however he the silver-tongued devil that he always was the diplomat incarnate 
that Jean-Luc Picard has the reputation for being, he is able to sweet talk his way into her good graces with information and a bottle of wine. (laughs) Valentine's Day is coming up too, so there's some good advice for you guys. Yes, if you really want to get in good with your beloved, bring a bottle of wine and information about a secret Romulan plot. She will swoon all over you. (laughs) Oh... They just can't resist those pointy-eared connivers. Uh, anyway, so the resolution of that scene will be left for the next episode. However, this episode is not quite done. We are left off with one final bit of business, wherein Narek is in his, I guess you'd call it an apartment, his quarters on the Borg cube, lounging, and uh, Rizzo contacts him. She just appears in holographic form and we discover that she is not only a secretly altered Romulan spy, but she is in fact Narek's sister. And, uh, they are in fact in cahoots. He is the, uh, implied best man that she has put on this mission of getting to Soji. And, uh, this is in fact a very high stakes affair. Oh, one thing, (laughs) <laughs> One thing that I forgot to mention, James, that that just thinking about Rizzo and uh, what have you brings back back in that scene in the Commodore's office. There was a lot of J.J. Abrams esque lens flare like, you know, they they really went overboard with the lens flare in that scene. Thank you for picking up on that. And it's exactly what I thought, too, it was very distracting and very annoying. And I don't know why they went back with that, but I don't know if they did it to get an emotional reaction from us because I was getting angry of the corruption and all that stuff. And then, yeah, the flares just really drove me over the edge. And also, too, I just wanted to uh, point out that uh, when you pointed out that uh, in the first episode, in the first scene, when Mr. Data uses a contraction... Last time on Star Trek Picard. I I needed to watch that scene a good three or four times after you had told me about it, and I still would have never picked it up had you not pointed that out and uh, also to just one more thing a very generous man allowed me access to uh cbs all access so that's why i was able to watch these episodes and and try and participate in this podcast so thank you to that very generous man indeed so finally we're left off with the on the next episode of star trek picard they don't actually say it it's just text but you know that's the uh, that's the intention i think that kind of tone what we'd have to look forward to in the next episode It seems like the bulk of the focus is Picard securing a ship and a pilot. So, uh, he, 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 Rafi sets him up with a pilot and a ship. He, the two of them, the three of them, the three of them set out on their adventure. And, uh, you know, so I guess that's where the story really starts to pick up. And we also get the idea that Soji doesn't know who she is. Like, it's kind of impressed upon us that she she really has no idea what she, who she is and what she's actually in for or, or what have you. So lots of, you know, ominous dun-dun-dun kind of with that storyline. But that's for next week. For this week, James, before we finish this podcast, I have to ask you, what did you think of the episode? Analysis. Overall, it was really good. I thought the first two episodes are very exciting and they're doing a very good job of uh, laying the groundwork for the rest of the season. I thought the special effects are fantastic and the acting is terrific as well. 
I was just curious of your take on uh, Sir Patrick Stewart's excellent performance, whereas when he was Captain Picard, he had a very professional air and confidence about him. And obviously now that Sir Patrick Stewart is a much older gentleman in real life, the character he's playing, it really looks like to me that he's a man with anguish and he's kind of lost that swagger because, uh, you know, his heart was broken to, to, to use a, uh, you know, very low term of uh, what he's gone through. I'm just curious what your take on that is um, of, of the performance of uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. It's a good observation. I would say it's two things. One, I think there is definitely intention on his part to play it that way because I think what he's trying to evoke is the idea that when the whole Romulan evacuation and and the Mars attack happened, it caused him to have a crisis of confidence. And that's as much as anything what caused him to retire from Starfleet. And I think he's, he's been playing that and along with that has come kind of a, a personal frailty or an emotional frailty, if you will, because Dr. Ben Ayun in that exchange makes a point to say that apart from his parietal lobe issue, he is healthy as a horse. Like he's he's in better shape than than people half his age is the implication. So physically, he's he's doing well, but emotionally and you know, from a confidence standpoint, he's definitely not. And I think Patrick Stewart is definitely playing that aspect of the character up. And I think based on at least some of what we've seen in the trailer for next episode and, and from the series kind of trailers that we've seen overall, there are definitely scenes where he seems much more at ease and, uh, you know, much more like himself than we have seen heretofore. The other thing that I think that we're seeing is, I think, from a more practical standpoint, the uh, it's the cabbage head thing again. I think there are a lot of situations where we, the viewing audience, don't know what's going on. And, you know, Patrick Stewart, Captain Picard is in a lot of these scenes, our viewpoint character. So correspondingly, he has to not know what's going on. So we can learn together what's going on. So since we're not used to seeing Jean-Luc Picard as somebody without a full command of the situation and, you know, being one of the most informed people around, I think it's just jarring to see that aspect of him. So again, as he gets his confidence back as a character and as he starts to become, you know, kind of master of his fate instead of just floating along on the the outskirts, I think we will see a definite change in the way Picard is played. And just one more thing from me before we wrap up, and that's this. One thing I found uh, kind of interesting after the fact when I was reviewing this episode to to kind of figure out what to talk about the name of this episode is Maps and Legends. Now, the Jat Vash is kind of presented to us as a Romulan urban legend. Now, it seems like they are real, but they're understood to be something of a legend. So, so that part of it I get. I don't understand the maps part. I, I could have missed something, but I didn't see any clear... Uh, well, there, I, I didn't see any clear physical maps or, or, you know, digital maps or anything like that. But I also didn't see any kind of 
metaphorical maps like uh you know easy signposts to lay out where where they're going did you pick up on anything that i missed i'm trying to think it seems like they need a map because they gotta they have to find where uh where soji is seriously so uh that's over my head all right so <laughs> so we we are both agreed that we're we're somewhat stumped as to what that is supposed to represent all right listener again if you picked up on something that we missed, we want to hear it. Do you have a theory about why it was called Maps and Legends? Do you have a, a, an insight that we failed to cover? You know, it's, it's, it, it boggles the mind to think that there's anything we failed to cover in this podcast. It's, uh, it's been a while <laughs> that we've, we've been chatting here, but um, we try to be thorough. But if you have an insight, if you've got thoughts, we want to hear about them. Once again, Vintage Picard just about everywhere so hit us up and we can have a conversation together so you know until until then until next we speak in the meantime uh you know that has been us here on on vintage picard hopefully next week we will have some more answers and i'm sure we will have many more questions but that is for next week for now we look forward to joining you again on another episode of vintage picard until then Good journeys. Thanks, everybody. I don't. I still don't have a way to end this podcast. <laughs> um, one of these days, James. One of these days, James. I gotta figure something out because uh, I am lost at sea or in space. Lost in space. That's the wrong franchise. Stop it! Stop it! I'm so sorry. You could just if you want to be really corny, you could just do something like uh, Gary out. You know. <laughs> And transmission. I'll see you next time. Come on, give me all the cliches. <laughs>